right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 39. Uh, so many people were into the space episode we just did um, that I asked Jason back, and we're going to take one more whack at space because there were just so many things that we didn't touch on. Um, so this will probably be the last time for a while that I, I go at space in this way. Um, but I wanted to mention a couple of other things. I'm noticing on, uh, I always look at TV listings, not so much to watch, but just to see what's being pushed. Right now I'm seeing a lot of nuclear fear being pushed. The Nuclear Option is a show running on PBS, followed by something about uranium mines. Didn't watch either one of them, didn't need to. But you can see the construct of the back-to-back fear porn. You know, the election was run in much the same way, where they created all kinds of divisiveness. The funny thing is, is it's created. Um, They know when they script what any candidate is saying or what the news will push, that some people will be all about it and other people will absolutely dread it. And this is a complete construct. People are not born Republican or Democrat. It's a ridiculous construct. A human being is so much more than what encapsulates either one of those ideas, and yet it is so effective at dividing us. And the reason I bring this up is because I'm seeing listings where they are talking about America being divided more now, uh, or, or, or as much now, any time since the 60s. So basically what they're stating is we are so divided that we haven't seen a time of division like this since the 60s. And I would remind everyone, these things are constructs. Um, there is no reason to fall on either side of this argument. As a matter of fact, a reasonable person would just ignore it and go on with their life. Um, uh, you know, divide and conquer. Isn't that really what's going on here? And uh, before I jump into the show, I wanted to do one more comment. I haven't talked about chemtrails in a long time, and I've been getting a lot of uh, correspondence from people I've done shows with. Matt Landman, who's big activist in the chemtrail world, showing that there are a lot of groups of people like astronomers, telescope users, others that are getting sick of all the visibility and the sunlight being blocked. It's a wonder that so many people can walk through a day in this country, um, because I know what's happening here, and not realize what's going on in the sky above their head. But we were here where I am in Rhode Island, down into the low 20 degrees, uh, a big snow flurry hit. It was a little north of us where they started to get 12, 14 inches, but we did get, I don't know, six inches or something. Don't know exactly how much, but we did get some snow. The day after it snowed, um, I saw chem planes going straight up. Now, I've seen this a number of times. From my vantage point, this always occurs in the northeastern sky every time I see these planes going ballistic. It looks like they're on a slight tilt, but basically going straight up until you can't see them anymore. They turn off their sprayer, and you can't see the plane anymore. The reason I'm mentioning this is because the following day, it rained All the snow that fell was gone, and the temperatures went up into the 40s. So we went from a typical kind of 20s, low 30s, snowing New England winter in one day, watching these chem planes do an aerosol injection straight up. And this is mixed, of course. The other planes were spraying vertically as they they typically do, but then we jumped straight to the 40s. Um, There may be a show in the not-too-distant future where I come back and talk a bit about chemtrails and catch up with the people who look at this exclusively to see where they're at and see what they're saying. But anyhow, 
this is episode 39. We're going to take one more crack at space here to try to show people all the things that they can look at to understand the construct of what is going on, how the image of space was placed in your mind. And I'll state the little thumbnail I made is just a jab. It's one of these things where MTV grabbed early the iconology of a man standing on the moon to implant this idea in the younger generation of the astronaut standing on the moon. They went so far as to make their award the moon man, which is what the astronaut in my thumbnail image is holding, making fun, of course, of what we can see now, that they're simply making stuff up and then inserting it into the public consciousness. Anyhow, let's jump into episode 39 with Jason Lindgren. This will be the last crack at space for a while. Here we go. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 39. Uh, Jason and I had quite a response from the space fraud episode, which was episode 38, that we figured we'd put one last coffin nail in the whole topic of space fraud. Um, Insofar as when Jason was putting together some of the things he wanted to cover, he titled it Space Fraud in Detail, A Bubble in Space. And of course, uh, most people are going to understand that that is referencing Uh, the nonsense spacewalk footage that came from recently China that shows bubbles coming out of spacesuits because they are filming it in a pool. Um, Very few people are aware that if you go, you know, here's a funny thing about that. If you go look up images, and there are fewer and fewer of them all the time, of the pool where they have the mock-up of the International Space Station, Uh, if you go look that up, almost all the images are shot with a fisheye lens, which is the first funny thing. But There used to be, uh, about a year ago, if you looked hard and deep, you could find a couple images where it shows where the green screen is in that pool setup. But they're always trying to hide it, and I guess it retracts or rolls up or something like that, so you can't see it in a lot of the imagery. Anyhow, that's just another thing you can take a look at. But anyhow, welcome aboard again, Jason. Thank you. Always glad to be here. Right on, man. You ready to just take one more final swipe at space and kind of... Just, you know, obliterate it for anyone who actually wants to take the time to, to do a serious look? Yes, I sure am. I This is continuing on from the research I did last week. I spent the day yesterday just going through tons of footage, especially old film footage that's uh, readily available to anybody. And when you do so much in so little time, it's, it's very disturbing. Uh, you know, growing up, I think a lot of us loved the whole concept of space and NASA and all that, you know, being good American citizens that we are. And I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a little kid. And this is all very disheartening. Uh, nothing proves 100% about anything. It's just there's so much evidence that something is wrong. We We absolutely have to cry foul and say what's really going on here. Well, I think you're a bit of a more forgiving human being than I am in this, because in, in my view, in my view, there is absolutely no doubt. And even if we were just to take this apart as simply as we could and understand that we've been lied to on some major things, then we simply need to ask the question, do we take any information from people who lie to us at this level? And, you know, of course, the answer for me is no way in hell is that ever going to happen. Um, but I know where you're at, man. When, uh, when I was a kid, I had all the, the moon maps from National Geographic on my wall. I was into the whole thing. And, of course, by the time I got in the 90s, I wanted nothing more than to get a big telescope so that I could take views myself. But, you know, we've kind of reached a point in the game where you got to realize that for the moonshot alone, the amount of money they claimed that they took from the American people is staggering. 
And some of the excuses they used to stop the Apollo missions were about money. Uh, some of it was supposedly that we'd all fallen asleep and couldn't care less about the moon. But I have a suspicion that that was also a media construct. But my point is, it, none of it holds water. By the time you get up into Skylab and then into the shuttle missions, uh, it's been demonstrated that they were spending many times the amount of money than they were during the Apollo episode. But anyhow, I'll quit rambling here. I'll kick it over to you and let's jump right back in where we left off before. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the timeline again that I had set up last week with the all the launches and everything. Starting back at the beginning would be the dawn of the space age with Sputnik 1, which was the first artificial satellite. This thing was 22-point inches around, launched by the Soviet Union on top of an R-7 ICBM missile on October 4, 1957. It orbits the Earth and transmits signals that could be picked up by anyone with the appropriate radio equipment until its batteries ran out 22 days later. There are also claims that it had also been seen with binoculars during its time in space. Sputnik 1 falls from its orbit in January of 1958. Now, these same rockets are what would be used to carry nuclear warheads, which was discussed openly at the time. Uh, I, I see this as social engineering on a worldwide scale to help with the nuclear scare. The other thing that bothers me, and I want to ask you, since you've done a lot of telescope work, is is something that's 22 point inches around, could that be seen with binoculars if it was in orbit? Well, I mean, this takes us back to the whole question of where space actually begins, if there was such a thing as space as it's been described to us. The problem here is, is that we can look up, anyone can go look up right now and you'll get returns, uh, anything from around 60 miles or the, I forget what, it's not the Kremlin line, I can never remember the word, it's a German name where the line of space begins, all the way up to about 100 miles. Some of them are in kilometers. So, if we were to say roughly from 60 to 100 miles, there, there's no way in hell unless it was glinting light, you know, sunlight or something like that. Then you might see um, a point of light or a sparkle of light. But um, the funny thing about this as you read it is even up to the modern era, our rockets haven't really changed. And here's another problem with the whole construct. So you're telling me that during World War II, uh, Werner von Braun was creating rockets that ended up being, I don't know, what were they, the Atlas or the Saturn, whatever the name of the rocket. I think it was Saturn rockets, if I'm, I hope I'm right there, that he starts using. And they are so damn good that all the way up past the millennium into the new century, we're primarily using the same equipment that we used back then. And that's just not the way things work, man. You can look at any given thing that is mechanical. Motorcycles is a good example. You can see how motorcycles started and where they came, and now we've got these crotch rockets today, which are the epitome of engineering and technology. But these rockets, they don't really change, do they? No, and um, the whole thing with Werner von Braun I'm about to get to in the next couple of points because he plays an integral part in this whole storyline. Yeah, well, well, we, we should also preface this, because I don't think we added this into the questions, that Werner von Braun actually ends up working with Disney and going on uh, the, the wonderful world of Disney in black and white on Sunday nights. He is in collusion with Walt Disney, demonstrating to the American people what the next steps in space will be. And I've said it a million times. Serious endeavors do not cross over into entertainment. They just don't. Um, but anyhow, I kind of tracked you off. Go ahead. No, that's all right. And you're right because uh, a lot of the stuff with Disney was uh, incorporating 
what the space race was at the time of the 50s and 60s. You know, they did a lot of uh, programming showing what was supposed to be the future. So you're completely correct there. Well, it's 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 more than that, Jason, too, because if, if anyone goes back and looks at the uh, the broadcasts of the wonderful world of Disney that are showing what's next in space, the first thing that struck me was the language. We, you know, here's this Disney Imagineer or somebody from Disney saying we are doing this next. And, you know, it, it's it's just not worded properly um, to the modern eye when you go back. But here's the thing. When you go look at what they're showing you, we still to this day don't have things that even approach the sophistication. They're showing you space stations that spin like in 2001 to create their own gravity. So you can even see the mindset where Kubrick's getting ready to make 2001 um, in the same decade as this Disney stuff is being broadcast. And they're showing the wheel, the self-gravity making space station. We never get things like this. So you can even see how their very own ideas that they put out to see it in to the minds of the people of what space would be, what living in space would look like, never materializes, and they actually have to move away from it till we get this cheesy thing we call the International Space Station, which is a way lower tech version of what we were being shown on the wonderful world of Disney. Right. The, the Disney stuff pretty much did look like what was shown to us in 2001 A Space Odyssey. And obviously, as we know, it's 2017 and we're nowhere near that. No, not even close. Even the vehicles are beginning to look, you know, kind of George Jetson rockets that look more like airplanes that are jets or something like that. And like we just mentioned, nope, we're still using the old Saturn or Atlas, whatever the heck they are. The same basic model rocket that was supposedly designed by Werner von Braun all those years ago. Right. And uh, he he had a lot to do with that. Now, um, the rockets that he developed while Nazi Germany was still in existence was the V-2 that's what was used to, uh, at the end of the war, to send the missiles over to, on, uh, on England and all that. But they were also using them to launch them up. So, so Nazi Germany was actually getting higher uh, up into the air than, than anyone else was at the time. So obviously, if there's any validity to that being historical fact, obviously other peoples who were winning the war would want that technology for themselves. So that's what Operation Paperclip was all about. Right. And and I'm not going to track sideways into the war because I have real problems with the description of World War II. I recently took apart Pearl Harbor. It's a fraud. I recently took apart Midway um, and the Midway battle footage that was supposedly done by John Ford, a Hollywood producer who's so famous for his Westerns, claiming he caught shrapnel on his arm, filmed real combat, all this nonsense. It's all nonsense. Um, These are constructs. And when you know these things and you begin to look at World War II uh, back again, World War II is really no different. And I know people are going to have trouble hearing this, but World War II is no different than any point in history you look at. It does not add up to what we have been told. Right. And the problem is the farther back you go in time, the harder things are to prove because no one's alive to to even corroborate like historical events you know there's a few people left from world war ii now and um i actually knew a, a very old world world war ii vet a few years ago that i asked some questions to and of course he only had limited information but i asked him about uh the atomic bomb and they were training in um, amsterdam for the invasion of japan and this was on uh the anniversary of the dropping of atomic bombs on hiroshima and he said that uh, they announced over their loudspeakers, we just dropped an atomic bomb on Japan. He said, we looked at each other and said, what the F is an atomic bomb? Nobody knew what it was. 
and uh, they gave the equivalent in TNT of what the power it would have been, and they said, "Well, the war's over. You don't you don't have to invade Japan anymore." So that's as far as I've ever been able to speak to somebody who was in World War II. Well, there's a for me personally, having been a United States Marine, a big part of basic training for the Marines, particularly if you're in the San Diego Marine Corps base being trained and not Camp Lejeune. I don't I've never been to Lejeune. There's a Marine Corps museum there and all the streets in the training in the boot camp area are named after the island hop, you know, Iwo Jima, all these other islands um, that were part and parcel of why Marines were famous, um, this island chain hop, and it's hammered into you over and over. But one of the things they do there um, is they talk about the most famous iconic image of World War II, which is the flag being raised over Iwo Jima. Here's the rub. Um, They tell you flat out in boot camp that the image that you see was staged. They tell you that the first image was taken, but the flag wasn't big enough and there was a problem with the pole they were using or something. And so the press guy who was there taking the picture has them stage the second image. So even the descriptions of some of the most iconic things about the war are staged and they're admitted staged. And, you know, that should make people think twice. Absolutely. Well, moving forward, after Sputnik 1, we have the United States Explorer 1 is the first satellite launched on January 31st, 1958. The U.S. Army Ballistic Missile Agency was directed to launch a satellite using its Jupiter-C rocket developed under the direction of the aforementioned Nazi paperclip scientist Dr. Werner von Braun. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory received the assignment to design, build, and operate the artificial satellite that would serve as the rocket's payload. JPL completed this job in less than three months. And there's the tell, isn't it? Um, three three months. Three months. It seemed, yeah, it seems like back in the 60s with no real computer power and no modern technical tools like we have now, they could knock things out in a week or two. Um, I mean, look at Virgin Galactic sitting out there in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico on the 33rd parallel, can't even go to the edge of space. And yet back here on January 31, 1958, not 68, uh, they just knocked this out in three months it's because the water was a lot better yeah it must be no no fluoride in the water you know (laughs) i don't know maybe the milk was better too (laughs) so uh we jump to july 20th 1958 nasa is officially founded and this is something i'd like to spend a few moments on I, i know you have some info on this their main logo as well as many of their mission patches utilizes what's called the vector the delta or the chevron symbol Other countries' space agencies, as well as numerous corporations, not just space-related, also use a variance on this symbol, and I'd love to hear your take on that. Well, (laughs) this is... This is a thing that I looked at, I think, a couple years ago, and actually, after the last episode, uh, someone who was listening to us commented that the European Space Agency doesn't have the vector symbol, which I wasn't aware of, but I haven't looked at this in quite some time. Um, Symbols have meaning. Let's leave it at that. And not only that, the fact that it's called Chevron uh, relates it directly to military. You know, whenever you see the stripes of a private, a PFC, a corporal or a sergeant, you're looking at a Chevron. It's what it's called. Um, People can look up the etymology of that word. If I had to guess, I think it's a French derivation, that word Chevron. But um, it's definitely indicating 
membership in a club in my mind, and it's definitely relating because of its the the name Chevron to military usage. Um, other than that, it's it's a lot of speculation. And the problem here is is that when we take apart the mission patches, there is so much symbolism going on that I think you could probably get ten people in a room who understand things pretty well, and you would hear a lot of different versions of what's going on. Uh, whoever said that is indeed correct. I just looked up the European Space Agency. It is a tilted globe, I guess it's supposed to be, with an E onto the right-hand side and a white dot on the side. Maybe that's supposed to represent the moon, and then next to it says ESA. Uh, it still looks very much like, you know, the, the whole globalist kind of design, but yeah, it doesn't have the vector in it, at least not without stretching the imagination a little bit. You know, in modern times, they're paying, playing a big part in the fraud because they had to do with the Rosetta fraud comet landing um, and other things that have been pawned off on the people. And again, you know, I would be asking, you know, I don't know how the European Space Agency works, but I mean, is that money supposedly coming out of the pockets of the European Union or something like that? If so, uh, I'm here to tell you they are handing you fraud, uh, telling you things about space that aren't true showing you missions that are not even occurring in any semblance of the way they're being described. And, you know, that bill, I'm not sure who's paying it over there, but we know who pays it here in the U.S. The people pay it. Right. Now, knowing what I know about central banking and the fact that the majority of the European countries are using the euro, I'm sure there's just some dirty shenanigans going on with the banks to funnel money where they want it to go. You know, as I, if I remember correctly, as I was doing the Rosetta mission breakdown to, to demonstrate the nonsense and the encoding back to the Egyptian island that it was named after Filet and the Isis temple and all the nonsense they had going on, I think I remember, I'm not 100%, but I think I remember seeing numbers that were a heck of a lot less than the numbers bandied about during the Apollo era. So it could be um, that maybe they're not floating the gazillion dollar price tags on these things they used to. And if that's true, I would suspect that's partially out of fear because how could they not know that at some point with everything we have at our disposal now and the ability to review all the nonsense they hand us that people are not going to catch on to what they're doing? Right. Well, the whole Internet generation, you know, the people who want to start digging can. And I think that's what's different from all the decades previous. You know, if if they handed out bullshit in the newspaper, pretty much people believed it. Nowadays, it's just a completely different thing. So I would tend to think that they're trying to be more careful about the way they do their shenanigans. Well, it's a funny thing because, you know, now there is no limit to the amount of time we can review a thing. You know, back in the day in the 60s, uh, like you said, maybe you saw a newspaper clipping or if you did see something on TV, there was no way to record it. So you got one shot at it. Um, Now we can take those videos, we can put them in an editor, we can look at every frame, we can scrutinize everything. And that's a big part of why um, these space agencies are going to be in big trouble here shortly. Well, and that's exactly what I did yesterday. I went all the way back into the 50s looking at old footage. Now, on a tiny little TV, and I bring this up later with the Apollo situation, on these tiny little crap, you know, no bigger than 23-inch black and white coming over in aerial TVs, I mean, how good does the image have to be, you know? Uh, I've even heard it commented about when they remastered the original Star Trek that they did such a good job of it, you could see the coffee stains on their shirt, you know? But... Back then, when you're with the with the original run of it, you you couldn't see that stuff on that TV anyway. Right, and and half the stuff that was being shown you, like the actual moon landing, the video is so bad as to be almost worthless. Right, so you know, even if they did a bad job 
faking whatever the situation would be, you couldn't tell if it had if they had taken a modern set and put it on a TV back then, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference anyway. No, no. And and again, you know, now when we take those old degraded, purposely degraded uh, video clips or film clips and we scrutinize them, even the fact that they're degraded begins to tell us something about the fraud. Oh, absolutely. And we're going to get there. Believe me. Um, we're up to 1960. Werner von Braun is appointed as the head of NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. It's located in north central Alabama. Uh, this is where the Saturn V rockets were made, uh, where they developed Skylab, and they were involved in the development of the Space Shuttle Program and the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, they share land with the Redstone Arsenal, having originally been an Army rocket development facility within Redstone that was called the Army Ballistic Missile Agency. This is where the Jupiter-C rocket was developed, used for Explorer 1. Uh, it's the mission that confirms the existence of the Van Allen radiation belts. So we see all these things being set up right from the get-go. Now, whether those are real or not, I guess we can't really prove uh, on our level. But, you know, they, they, in 1958, they, they said, hey, these things exist out there. Um, but anyway, the whole point behind all this is there's a military connection right from the get-go with the space program being uh, they're developing these rockets on land that's shared with an army base. So um, <clears throat> we have the Explorer satellites being launched, and Explorer 6 takes the first picture of Earth on August 14th, 1959. And I looked at this picture, and uh, it literally is a white blur and a black background. It's from taken from a height of 17,000 miles. It's literally not even recognizable. Uh, just to test that, I showed my 13-year-old daughter the picture without saying anything. I was like, what does this look like? And she just kind of looked at it funny for a second. She's like, I have no idea. It, it looks like somebody jerked a camera around and just smeared. So, you know, My first reaction to that is it's 17,000 miles by their own. If I remember correctly, Van Allen belt started something like 1,000 miles up or something like that. So it would put them right in the middle of that. So here in the same same breath you know you're being told we discovered these belts and yet they're taking pictures from the middle of it and then if we fast forward up to interviews with the apollo guys there's actually apollo guy saying i don't think we ever went through the belts and then someone points out that yeah you kind of had to and uh, as the conversation progresses it's clear that the man is lying um, and that he doesn't even know what he's talking about for my money i don't accept uh, the Van Allen radiation belts. I think it's just more construct, more imagery to get you to buy into things. But that sets aside that when you can demonstrate lies of a certain magnitude, to accept any of the information is basically insanity. I mean, if we can prove they didn't go to the moon, why would we believe anything they said about Van Allen radiation belts? It makes no sense. But when we logically begin to look at this, well, here's an example. In the Marine Corps, I was a radio operator. We were told over and over again that we were bouncing radio signals off the ionosphere. If you go do a lookup on the ionosphere, you'll see that roughly 30 to 40 miles above our heads, it fluctuates supposedly, there's these charged particles called the ionosphere. We're told that they go something like 1,200 miles up, when we're also told that space starts at some 60 to 100 miles over our head, and that space is a vacuum, and yet the ionosphere is charged particles, and it goes well into where the definition of space would be. And you can do the same thing with the Van Allen radiation belts. I did a clip on it. It's not one of my better clips. I, was, I had injured my leg at the time I did it. Um, I've almost taken it down a few times because it's missing so much information. Um, my point is this. If you go look at what you're told about the Van Allen 
radiation belts and look at it in the wider scheme of things and break it down in the same way I just broke down the ionosphere, you'll begin to see that it too appears to be a construct no different than any anything else we're told. And, and the problem is with something like the Van Allen belts, we can't prove that the existence of such a thing. Uh, the highest we can get with weather balloons on a private level is about 121,000 feet, which is like 24 miles up or something like that. So I don't think we can prove <clears throat> on, on a private level whether these things actually exist. Well, the Orion guys, you know, this new Orion, the replacement to the old Apollo missions, the, the modern Orion missions, um, you've got something like three or four astronauts basically stating the reason we did Orion is so we can finally go above what they call low Earth orbit. And it seems like what they're pointing at is the Van Allen radiation belts as the problem still. Um, or maybe it's not clear exactly what the problem is to safely go above low Earth orbit. But uh, in my view, it, I don't accept them. It's more construct. I have done work on the Van Allen radiation belts. I don't have it in front of me now, but I do understand that if you logically break down what you're being told, it falls apart. Well, according to Wikipedia, uh, the two main belts extend from an altitude of about 1,000 to 60,000 kilometers above the surface, and which radiation levels vary. So uh, who knows? That's too far for us to get a weather balloon up to and do any kind of tests. So it is what it is well, at this point. Right. But I mean, we could say we should know, shouldn't we? We're being told that endless things have gone well beyond low Earth orbit. As a matter of fact, we've got an endless array of supposed satellites in geosynchronous orbit. Geosynchronous orbits at 22,000 miles. We have a bunch that are supposedly in half geosync. Funny thing about that is, is when I researched the satellites, uh, I was questioning, well, if there's a Van Allen radiation belt, why aren't these things getting trashed up there? And there was no real coverage of that. And then later on, they began to say that the satellites that were in the Van Allen or beyond the Van Allens really did get affected by this radiation. So here again, you see all these mishmash stories um, when the fact is, is either there's a hell of a lot of radiation called Van Allen belts or there ain't. And if we are, in fact, putting satellites out at 22,000 geosynchronous so that it stays in orbit over one part of the Earth. And of course, all this is nonsense. Just to be very clear, nothing is in orbit. Um, and then we supposedly had other things at half that distance moving kind of slowly over the Earth. Um, they would all have to experience the Van Allen radiation belt. So where is the discrepancy? Where is the, the hard, cold, fast data um, that doesn't deviate from article to article? And it just it doesn't exist. Right. Now, the moon is approximately 230,000 miles away. So, hypothetically speaking, if the Apollo ships were going to the moon, then they would have to have crossed this at some point. Now, maybe there's points where it's thicker and thinner or it doesn't take that long to get through them. Obviously, we can't prove that. But no matter what, they would have had to have been exposed to it in some way, shape or form. Well, they made it into a big deal, and they've got Apollo astronauts who supposedly walked on the moon saying, I don't think I went through it. So it kind of tells you something about it, doesn't it? If it was a big deal and there were these dangerous, gnarly you know, radiation belts, and you're an astronaut, you damn well realize you went through them because you'd be scared to death that you might not make it, wouldn't you? And then when you start to look at the fact that there's real, no, really no radiation shielding of any kind on almost everything you're shown, um, from spacesuits to the little tinfoil lunar lander to um it, it goes on and on it does not hold up to scrutiny well you're having multiple accounts uh nasa 
astronauts saying one thing and then NASA personnel saying something else. So the truth is, we don't know what is the reality because you're having conflicting reports. Right. But I mean, I guess we could compare that to let's see, let's say Dodge made a new truck. Will we get conflicting reports on what the abilities, look, appearance and gas mileage on that truck are? Or we pretty much get a static picture that the truck looks like this. It comes in this many colors, has this much horsepower. There's this many versions of the truck. It's really no different. Whenever you begin to see accounts of things like this and it uses the old Tavistockian uh, never give them a clear picture, so it's always kind of a fuzzy image going on, and then introduced conflicting information, it kind of draws a picture of fraud, in my view. Well, the thing that bothers me about all of this is that how many of these astronauts are literally lying on camera and have been for decades? Every one of them, because nobody has been above low Earth orbit. Space doesn't exist in the way it's been described, and nobody has landed on the moon. So if you want to ask how many of these astronauts are lying, they're all a fraud. And as a matter of fact, if we go back to the 60s or even look at that movie, what was it, The Right Stuff, where they're showing you the supposed rigorous training and, you know, how they picked these men from the top of the Marine Corps and Air Force and these other places, they had to be the best of the best of the best. And they're putting them in centrifuges and they're, you know, they're doing all this stuff to these men saying, if you want to go to space, you've got to be just the toughest dude ever born, basically. Now you come to the modern era and look at the astronauts we're being shown. As a matter of fact, look how they're portrayed on TV. Wallowitz on the Big Bang Theory is kind of a small Jewish character who can't even run or play baseball, but he's good to go to space. You can see the discontinuum in the story being told us. At one point in the beginning, when we're all supposed to be getting interested, we're being handed heroes. These guys are the best of the best. These are people you should respect. You should have a poster of them on your wall. Look what they had to go through to qualify to be able to do this incredible endeavor. Now come up to the modern age, and it's the exact opposite. It's downplaying the lie that was initially seeded all those years ago. Right, and, and maybe the, uh, the assumption you're supposed to make is that they've got the hang of it now, and you don't need to be the super athlete to survive in space. You're just going up to the space station and coming back again. Yeah, you know, there's so many problems with when you begin to look at the space station. I mean, even the idea, you know, so much has been made of the female supposed astronauts and their hair, all the things they've done with their hair to make it appear like they're in zero G's. But I was in the military and I was in the strictest part of the military, the Marine Corps. The women in the Marine Corps have standards just like the men. The men may have to wear high and tights and keep a mustache an eighth of an inch off their lip and all these things, but the women have these standards too for a reason. Um, they have to have their hair cut above their shoulders, or I forget exactly what those standards are, but here we go to the International Space Station, a quasi-military endeavor, I would point out, and these women have hair down halfway down their backs, and it makes no sense. I mean, besides the fact that there would be hair all over that space station, I mean, if you want to cook hamburgers for someone, you got to wear a hairnet. And yet on the International Space Station, these women are going up there with absolutely no rule or regulation to grooming and what it would require to be in space in an enclosed environment. And this is just one of the oodles and oodles of things that is wrong with the ISS. Well, as far as I know, women can have their hair long, but it must be kept in a high tight bun. And why you wouldn't do that on a spacecraft just makes no sense to me. 
but uh, I don't think I've ever seen footage of one of the women in a high type bun. What you see is a lot of hairspray applied. And so it's like cement head where all the hair sticking straight up and it kind of jerks back into place and supposed zero G environment. And we have the women who were hung upside down. Um, you can see their puffy faces and their squinty eyes. But my point is, is my wife has long hair and you want to know something? Every time I change my underwear, I've got my wife's hair in my pants and my socks everywhere. Hair falls out. I mean, it's just the nature of being a human being. So how can it be that all these women are going up with all this long hair and there's no regulation for it? Wouldn't eventually the whole ISS be covered in, you know, dead skin and hair and just all these atrocious things? Oh, absolutely. Now, maybe they have procedures for this, if indeed the, the ISS exists, but... You're correct. There would just be matter everywhere. I will never accept that there wouldn't be some very tight regulation for an actual place like that, particularly when it concerns the uh, the cleanliness of the environment. And, um, you know, I we, we don't really need to jump on this too hard. There are just so many people who have done great videos on the fraud that is the International Space Station. And I think what gets most people, this is one point of space that is going to have to get addressed. There is a light. And it does match the timetables. I've proven it um, that of a light going by when the International Space Station should be going by. Um, so I have seen images from people who have caught it. It is very difficult to catch because it is moving so quickly. Most of the images have a streak or a blur, but it does appear to have the rough shape of what we would expect the ISS to have. But there are endless problems with it beyond that. And how that's being done, I can't answer. Some people have suggested it's high altitude balloons. I don't know, but I can tell you this, and I know this from firsthand experience. I once witnessed the ISS or what's called the ISS go across the face of the moon. It was a fraction of a second. It was so quick that had I blinked, I wouldn't have caught it. And it was at a time when I wasn't filming. And as a matter of fact, I had a 12-inch scope um, that I sent back that actually had a timer to alert you when it was coming and try to track it. Unfortunately, that scope broke a number of times. Um, there's some work to be done to show what that light is, but there is no International Space Station in the way it's been described. And if there was, there would be no reason to lie in the way they have lied and produce all those fraud videos. Right. And I don't have a problem with the concept of there being a space station out there. I mean, we can get balloons up high enough that it's in low Earth orbit. So I don't see why we couldn't have some sort of construct out there. I just don't think it's being presented to us in the public eye as what the reality of it really is. I think you and I differ there. Um, I don't think you can go to what is called space. I don't think we have a good image of what it is. I think it's possible it may be some kind of liquid. Um, hard thing to prove. But what we can demonstrate is that we don't have any solid evidence that demonstrates we've ever been above what is called low Earth orbit. No, no, no. I actually do agree with you. If indeed space is liquid, obviously there's going to be a point where it goes from what is considered the Earth's atmosphere to wherever this liquid starts. And uh, assumedly there would be a barrier between what is the Earth and what is space, right? So, like I said, I don't have a problem with the concept of there being something in orbiting whatever the Earth really is. That, that, that seems feasible just because a zillion people have put balloons up high enough that you're seeing the Earth far, far below you, you know? So I don't know what the reality is, but obviously something's going on. And if indeed there's some kind of barrier and the rest of space is liquid, then 
I would assume these space agencies know that. Well, I, I think that people have known this in, in the elite positions all the way back to, you know, before the modern era, before modern times. You know, if there was a renaissance time, there had to have been people who knew this. You know, we have woodcuts from historical periods of people showing a vastly different thing. But even to take the word orbit, you're accepting the orbital model that's been handed to us by these space agencies. And I don't accept it. I don't accept that anything is orbiting or spinning around anything. I don't. And I never will until there is actually a trustable source of some kind that can give us information that doesn't crumble under the weight of its own details. Um, and so the idea that you know, look at look at something as banal as satellites. We are told there are so many thousand satellites out there. How about that? You know, if you were in the ISS, any image taken outside the ISS should be catching glimpses of endless numbers of satellites. A guy I recently saw was a high-end mathematician, took, I think he used 15,000 satellites as his benchmark, although sometimes that number goes up around 20 or 30,000, I think, and that doesn't even include the broken ones or the space junk. And he said that in a, I don't know, was it a one or a three hour period with that many things in orbit, we should expect to see something like 100 objects transit the moon. Well, I can tell you this is not what we see. And so there really is no portion of the orbital model or any of the descriptions that we get that a person who actually wants to go out and observe like I did with a telescope and then take apart the data we're getting. It, it's all shenanigans, man. I suppose I'm using the word orbit for lack of a better term. Right. And, you know, this is where we're stuck. It's a bit like being asked about the lunar wave. And, you know, unfortunately, at one point I used the word hologram, wrong way to have gone. So then I tried to use the word facade, and that, too, was the wrong way to have gone. And this is the problem. We don't have language to describe the things we want to talk about. And in some ways, we're stuck with the encoded nature of, you know, orbit or world or, you know, all these things that have been predetermined to talk about this whole new reality which seems so far from what's been described right and the only thing we can do is try our best to figure these things out for ourselves by not taking the word of official agencies but try and do our own tests um i haven't told you this yet but i actually got a hold of uh black magic cameras yesterday and asked them if a camera would survive in space and it doesn't look like it would it would but i left a message for their media coordinator to get back to me to see if they have any ideas of what we could do so that we could do a high altitude weather balloon launch film it ourselves and just put it out there and say well this is what we got in super high res uh make of it as you will you know, a lot of people are doing that. Unfortunately, we see so many of them using fisheye lenses, which is very frustrating. Um, I would suggest that if someone was going to go down that road to use multiple cameras, um, one pointing down, one pointing up, and maybe one in a couple directions. I've seen some people ingeniously create these boxes to hold the cameras that have clever holes and wings on them so that they don't rotate so much. Um, if you go review what's out there, Someone who really wants to draw a picture of what an average person could put together and see um, that does not use a fisheye lens, that gets up to a serious altitude and uses multiple cameras, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be learned. Uh, that's exactly what I was trying to do. Uh, the Blackmagic cameras wouldn't have a fisheye lens unless you put one on there. Uh, everybody uses GoPros, and the reason why... Um, it's because their action cameras made to, to survive harsh conditions. They're, they're, they were developed for people doing, you know, stunts and adventures and things like that. And unfortunately, they have a fisheye lens without doing a couple hundred dollars worth of conversion. So that's why you see all these launches using 
those cameras, and that's exactly what I don't want to do. So I'm trying to find right. a high-end camera that, um, you know, maybe I could do a crowd crowdfunding thing to get a couple of really good cameras, make a big hoopla about it, uh, you know, for as many people as, as would promote it, and just try and get some accurate data out there, you know? It's a good thing to do. You know, we have seen a number of people do the weather balloon thing. Uh, some of them have been questioned for their you know, seriousness and authenticity and other ones appear to be just school kids and in one country or another or young people doing it. But uh, I haven't seen a lot of a really seriously concerted effort to make imagery everything so that the, the, the platform is not spinning. We're going for the top altitude we could get. And uh, these things are doable now because so many people have done it. It's pretty clear that the data is out there that you would need to refine the process. Well, since you have a very large audience, if anybody has any ideas on this, uh, email me at secretsofsaturn at gmail.com because I would like to figure out how to do this and figure out an exact cost and then do a crowdfunding. That would be a good thing for you to do, Jason. If you do it, uh, I'll cover it. I'll cover it on YouTube and I'll cover it on my show um, if you if you think you can go down that road. I mean, I, I imagine it's a lot of work and I know in a lot of places you can't just put a balloon up, but um, it doesn't mean it can't be done. Um, I've already done some homework on that and I found a company that will do it for you, do everything for you for $5,000. The gentleman who runs it is a former ISS flight controller. Uh, yeah, right. And I already spoke to him at length. Uh, he described to me what it is. Now, they sell the equipment, or if you want them to do it for you, uh, they will literally perform the exact mission you give them with the equipment. Uh, it's $5,000 for that, including all the balloon and all that stuff. And then they'll give you give everything back to you. They'll even set up a YouTube live stream for you so that you could make it a big event and have everybody tune in. So this is what I found to be the most transparent situation I could come up with. So I'm thinking this whole endeavor would probably cost somewhere around ten or $12,000 between the cameras and paying this uh, company to do everything for us. And then all of us could tune in while our cameras that we paid for captures what it captures, you know? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to say about that. You've got a guy who's associated with the ISS. Uh, the, the problem would be ensuring that the feed you're looking at is actually the cameras that you provided and that it's not some kind of a canned predisposed thing. Uh, anyone who's been involved with the ISS, in my view, has lied to the public knowingly. Right. And I, I, I would intend to be there. They, I, I believe it was Colorado that they do the launches out of. Uh, I would just fly up there for the couple of days that this would be going on and make sure that everything was, you know, it, it, as kosher as I could possibly make sure it would be. Because obviously I don't want to waste people's money. If they're going to donate, I want to make sure this is done right. On the other side of that, I would love for a company that does this on a regular basis that has the greatest chance of success to do it as opposed to me just kind of hoping I did it right, you know? Yeah, I mean, if, if you've got the wherewithal, uh, it'd be interesting to see what you can do. Um, I've been offered many times, and I have steered away from doing things like that. Um, for me, it just gets too problematic. I'm too, too predisposed to looking at what's going on and breaking it down logically, and I constantly find problems, and I just end up saying I'd, I would rather do other things with my time. But, I mean, if you can pull this off, let's see where it goes. Anyhow, um, where where were we on the timeline, by the way? I think All right, I lost well, we really didn't get too far. We kind of uh, 
discussed a bunch of other things that we really didn't last time, so that's cool, you know. Um, we're up to April 12th, 1961. Yuri Gagarin aboard the Vostok 1 rocket uh, becomes the first man in space. I watched as many videos as I could find of this. Uh, there's an incredibly blurry video of him inside the capsule, but nothing definitive that shows the Earth or space outside. Um, if what they showed on these videos is period accurate, you know, it happened during the flight, the Earth looks different from other images of the same time. This is the thing I keep seeing repeated over and over again. Um, there's no specific statement, however, that the images that they flash real quick were from actually the Vostok 1 mission. Um, I looked up the diagrams of what the capsule looked like. There are three portholes that would have been able for uh, Yuri Gagarin to look out of. So you would think that he should have uh, shot some pretty spectacular footage in his short trip, you know, just point a camera out there and start snapping shots. Um, but no, nothing I could find exists. So we move on to the first NASA man space, who's Alan Shepard on May 5th, 1961, during the Mercury program. Now, the Mercury program ran from 1958 until 1963. Uh, the only footage I could find of his historic event was also from inside the capsule facing the astronaut, better than the Russian stuff looked, but still nothing outside, nothing whatsoever. Um, I looked at a bunch of stuff from Mercury. I've only been able to find a few pictures from early NASA launches that showed the Earth from any particular mission and nothing of space. That's not to say it doesn't exist, but I just, I, I, I could not find it. And it's so problematic because you're getting into that period of time that um, is a little bit before my lifetime, but I can certainly remember the equipment and the people who were there, my parents and whatnot. If you were a person who had money, uh, it was during this period you could start to get home movie projectors that shot in color. Um, and a lot of people had their hands on them. So, again, we've got to ask why um, you're going to do these things. Wouldn't one of the paramount things you would be concerned with is getting good color imagery? And as we know from this period, almost everything is handed off in black and white. Most of it is degraded video. And then we have a plethora of an absence of any photographic or video re record whatsoever and to me that is problematic i mean if i was the guy in charge here one of my paramount concerns after the safety of people and pulling off the mission would be the best imagery that could be taken absolutely and here's the problem all of the images i found look like they could have been taken from weather balloons uh, because i looked at a lot of of pictures and video taken from weather balloons the earliest pictures from weather balloons that uh they used weather balloons and they used the V-2 rockets that they captured uh, in the 40s that everything looks like it's about from that height, you know. And now, obviously, I really don't know. I'm not a scientist and, and all this stuff. But it, it all looks like it's about the same height, like looking at what you can see of the Earth and the distance and everything. Uh, so I, I don't know. Well, I think you're, you're right. You know, there were a couple channels. There were surfer. There were two or three channels who had taken uh, some aerial footage from a plane at roughly 70,000 feet and demonstrated uh, what it looked like looking straight down at the world and then comparing it with these things that were supposedly taken by the ISS in space. And it was very evident that clearly uh, th this footage could have been taken from a high-altitude plane or by a weather balloon. Um, not really arguable. That's been demonstrated. Right. And the thing I kept looking at is where's the line of the Earth versus how much space do you see? And it just, it all looked very similar, you know, like it's they're really not that far out. Not until you start seeing stuff from Apollo later on. Um, next up, 
we have the first spacewalk by Alexei Leonov of the Soviet Union on March 18th, 1965. I watched as much video of this as I could find. It's very blurry and jerky. Pretty much nothing can be gained from it other than the fact that the Earth definitely does not look the same as it does in other space videos. Trying to compare it to the stuff from the same time period as the as the Mercury missions, just the Earth looks different. Um, on the Russian stuff, as a matter of fact, the Earth looks really bad. It just looks blurred. And um, I, I don't know what to say other than the fact that it just blatantly looks like a bad television show on PBS. <laughs> well, you know, that it's kind of a telling thing, too, um, that if we look at the timeline of space we've been handed, even allus.com, you know, runs down a timeline. The Russians were kicking our butt at every corner. Um, and this is a very telling thing. So we're told that all this treasure, blood, sweat, and tears from two countries at odds with each other are doing this race to the moon. The Russians are kicking the Americans' butt all over the place up to a certain point, we are told, when the Americans finally beat the Russians to the moon. And what happens? Well, Neil Armstrong puts his boot print down, and the Russians say, oh, damn, the, the Americans beat us. I guess we're done. And they never go to the moon. So... Isn't that a very telling thing? If you spent decades building a space agency and racing with a country to the moon and they went there first, wouldn't you at least complete the mission and go to the moon? And this is not what happened. No, and, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of situations that aren't really openly discussed, but I found a lot of information on that. And both the United States and the Soviet Union were supposedly sending probes to the moon and some of them landed, but the majority of them crashed. Apparently, it was just very difficult to accomplish uh, for whatever reason. Well, that, yeah. So, you know, you, you could even see it on the Aulis timeline of the Aulis website. Uh, the Russians put the first probe and there were all these other probes, but it's all nonsense. Um, you can take any one of these accounts apart methodically and find the holes in the story. And then pretty soon you find that it doesn't jive and it just none of it holds up. Not one shred of it holds up. There are no probes. There are no nothing on the moon. I mean, right now, China's doing it to it. They're, they're supposed to be on the moon. And yet, where is all this sweet 2017 high-definition video from the moon? Where is it? You know? That's it. That's the stuff I said last in our last show. Right. Come on, man. Take a picture of Apollo 11. Everybody wants to see it. Let's freaking see the descent. Uh, lander still sitting there because it should still be sitting there let's see or it come on take take a picture of the earth rising and spinning or take a picture of a planet or take a picture of anything in high def just kick butt video you're never going to see it because with high def video you can see the pixels man <laughs> you can see that yeah you can see the nonsense it would not be long in the same way that the that the blue earth image from earth um, was known to be a fraud for all those years. It was took till recently that people realized they had cloned the clouds. So in something like six or eight places, there are identical clouds. Looks like someone took the Photoshop clone tool and cloned cloud cover. And this demonstrates flat out what you're looking at. Well, when you get up into the ability to shoot really high definition 4K video or better, um, they're going to have trouble faking that, man. Well, you, you actually are correct. The way they would do it in the old days before Photoshop, Photoshop uses things called layers. They call them that because in the old days, when you had to do things physically, that's literally what they were doing. They were making layers of 
pictures on top of each other and then taking a new picture. That's why if you look right. at the blue marble picture, it looks a tiny bit washed out. Now, I'm sure they were using the best lenses and, and film and everything that they can get their hands on, but still, it's still a physical analog device, and there's going to be a bit of real-world graininess to it. So when you say that the, the clouds were cloned and all that, they probably were. They're probably cut out and laid in a way to look realistic, but in fact... No, it's a composite image that, you know, what we see of the blue marble picture is really just several pictures layered and arranged the way they wanted it to look, and then a new picture taken, and here you go, this is the Earth from space. Well, they've even showed other images of the supposed Earth from space where the clouds are inverted, you know, but it's the same clouds. Um, I, I'm just saying, uh, on the face of it, for China to claim that they're on the moon now and to have provided us what they have provided us is enough for me, if I had nothing else... I would call fraud. Uh, it does not meet the expectation that a sane individual would expect of of a mission like of this type. Nope, I totally agree. And uh, you know, and it it this is seen over and over again. Even with the all the imagery I looked at yesterday, um, we get up to. The Gemini program that NASA is doing, which ran from 1962 to 1966, and the Amer first American spacewalk with Ed White on Gemini 4 on June 3rd, 1965. Now, this video does look better than anything I've seen yet, especially the Russian stuff, but it still looks really wonky and just kind of off. Uh, the Earth in this film looks quite different from the Soviet spacewalk, which was only a few months earlier. I could be wrong here, but the Earth seems to spin too fast in these videos. It just doesn't look right to me um, compared to think other images I watched. And the big thing that really bothered me, and I, I couldn't get confirmation of this, but the astronaut swivels his helmet and looks at the camera, which I don't... Which he's not... No, he's not supposed to be able to do that. It's supposed to be a static straight view. Yeah, that's what I thought too. But I mean, literally, like like it's a, an action figure and the head turns and looks directly at the camera. I mean, I don't know. That, that threw me off big time. Um, the EVA is said to have been filmed on 440 feet of film on a 7-inch reel... 16 millimeter film at 24 frames per second. Well, let, well, wait a minute. Let's break that down. So on June 4th, Gemini 4 shot 444 feet of film. That's a lot of fours, man. No, that's true. Right. Um, and a seven inch reel, that's pretty big. So the camera, and this is the video I watched, showed a bunch of the original stuff that should have been used. It, it, it's the camera would have had to have been really big, and did they have room for that in Gemini? I don't know, but it's like that in and of itself is really fishy. The main the main thing that struck me about the Gemini four footage, which is the first supposedly the first spacewalk filmed, um, is two things. The astronaut is moving in this herky jerky way. Yes. When I went to the Houston kind of Disneyland of space center there um all the little spacewalks they had in this hidden movie you weren't allowed to film or talk about or they locked the door like it was some top secret thing when they were supposedly telling you about all these awesome things americans had done in space every spacewalk had this herky-jerky feel to it and it's kind of an insidious thing because when you're watching it it gives you the impression that they're in this weird place called space but when you jerk yourself out of the trance you realize that's not fluid movement. What I had initially thought was going on is they shot at a very high frame rate and then simply changed the speed of the film run and then lifted frames here and there, like every fourth or every sixth frame or something like that. But in the Gemini 4 footage, there is a glove that comes from the bottom of the frame, hits the bulkhead, hits another thing, and echoes off into supposed space. 
if you take that footage, put it in an editor, and run it backwards on slow motion, you will see that the ricochet of the glove is happening at impossible angles. And the funny thing about it is your eye can't quite catch it when it's running at regular speed forward. But when you break it down in the way I just said, um, why? I mean, if you filmed a guy underwater, it would be a completely fluid dynamic thing and this sets aside the fact that the guy swivels his helmet when we're told the helmets didn't swivel so there's another lie to stack on top of all the other lies my point is this if we could have an allegory for what we're told space is it would be filming a guy underwater they do it all the time if you did that it would be fluid even Nothing unusual about it, but every time you see a spacewalk, pay attention. It's this herky-jerky, unnatural kind of film presented. And so why? Why do they constantly have to mess with something that could easily just be filmed and presented? And the reason for that is because it's fraud. Right, and that's what all this points towards. Now, to finish up with Gemini 4, um, the video I was watching yesterday showed the what's supposed to be the original reels that this is on, and it, it was labeled... Now, this, the EVA is supposed to have been taken place on June 3rd, 1965, and it was handwritten on there June 4th, 1965, and that may just be uh, when they came back to Earth and it was labeled. I'm, I'm not sure about that. Um, the other thing I noticed, though, that they showed internal capsule footage that looked quite inferior to the EVA footage, like it was... It definitely implies a different camera and lens and frame per second, uh, was in effect. Um, and according to this video that I watched, no camera capable of filming the EVA footage as it was stated and presented to the public was even present on the equipment manifest that they looked up for Gemini 4. I couldn't confirm that. I tried looking it up, but I couldn't find a website that said what their equipment manifest was. So take that as you will. Yeah, and there it is. I mean, I would not be surprised to find out that's true because so often people have gone back to the weight, um, you know, the weight databases where everything is weighed out and then the manifest of what's supposed to be there and they find all these anomalies like you're describing but anyhow jason that brings us to the top of the hour is there anything you want to squeeze into the first hour that'll go up on youtube before we make a cut point here yeah because after we finish with gemini we move on to apollo which is great to start the second hour so there is a good bit of film footage from the later gemini missions uh and they all seem to have a very similar look and feel so if we're going with the whole concept that this is done uh in production, almost Hollywood style, I would guess that the the individual missions kind of had their own look and feel, kind of like season one of Star Trek doesn't look the same as season three of Star <laughs> Trek. And that's where we can leave it until hour two. All right, man, we'll make a cut. That'll be the first hour for Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast, episode 39 with Jason Lindgren, the second episode on space and the fraud that space is, as described by the space agencies and textbooks around this world. And we'll be back shortly. I hope you join us on Crow Triple Seven Radio.com for the second hour, maybe second hour plus. Mm-hmm.